Okay, well, a very, very warm welcome, everybody, to this talk in the 141st session of the Aristotelian Society. Uh, it's a very great pleasure for me to introduce our speaker this evening, who is Ralph Bader, who is Professor of Philosophy at the University of Fribourg. Um, Ralph works on ethics, on metaethics and metaphysics, on Kant, political philosophy and decision theory, also works on early analytic philosophy and the history of political thought. And his talk this evening is on coincidence and supervenience. Ralph will speak for 45, 50 minutes or so. We'll take a five minute break and then we'll have a discussion. So uh, over to you, Ralph. Many thanks for the invitation. It's great to be here, um, if only virtually. I'm going to be talking about coinciding objects and uh, the way in which coinciding objects seem to involve a failure of supervenience and give rise to a famous problem called the grounding problem. When we start thinking about um, coinciding objects, it looks like there are certain kind of cases where objects coincide, sometimes temporarily, sometimes even permanently. It looks like we have cases, for instance, where we have a lump and where we have a statue. And um, it looks like these objects are going to be distinct objects. Uh, why are they distinct? Because they have different properties. Um, the lump has the modal property of possibly surviving squashing, being able to survive squashing, whereas the statue doesn't. The statue, when, it's, gets, when it gets squashed, goes out of existence. It lacks that modal property. Maybe even they also differ in aesthetics properties, subtle properties, all kinds of properties differ, um, are such that they differ amongst them, given that they have we have this difference in properties, Leibniz's law will tell us that they're going to be distinct. So the two objects will be distinct, even though they coincide. Uh, they coincide not just spatially, but also in an important sense, neurologically. They're going to be some excess, some parts that compose both of them. And now we have an, a famous problem for this pluralist position. The pluralist is the person who thinks that there can be coinciding objects, that distinct objects can coincide. Um, and that they can have these different properties. The distinctness of the object is explained in terms of the difference in properties, but now the challenge arises, how is it possible for that difference in properties to arise in the first place? How is it possible for one thing to have a certain uh, modal property, say, whereas the other one lacks it? How is it for, possible for one to have a certain aesthetic property whilst the other one lacks it, when these two objects are so intimately connected? And here we can state the problem in two ways. The first thing is when we draw a distinction, we use the, the label by, introduced by Karen Bennett between sortless um, properties on the one hand and non-sortless properties on the other. Sortless properties are properties like being a lump, the modal properties associated with it, the aesthetic properties and the like. Um, the objects X and Y that are taken to be distinct, they differ in terms of their sortless properties. However, they do share um, certain non-sortless properties. They're made of the same stuff. They have the same weight. They occupy the same spatiotemporal region um, and they have the same shape, uh, etc. There are various properties that they share. So they're going to, it's going to be a property profile, let's just call it um, delta that characterizes the object X and a property profile delta that characterizes the object Y. And now we have um, the following problem that the property of X, that it is a lump, cannot seemingly be explained in terms of the property profile 
uh, delta x. Why is that? Because whatever explanation we give to explain the property of being a lump in terms of, um, or the modal property of being able of surviving squashing in terms of the underlying non saltless property profile delta, that very same explanation should also hold in the case of y, because y has the very same saltless and non saltless profile. So if we can explain x as being a lump in terms of it, then y should likewise be a lump, but it isn't. It's a statue. So here we have a failure of supervenience. This is a single domain supervenience relation that fails the um, sortlish properties of objects fail to supervene on the non sortlish properties. So just the examples, L being a statue, being a lump, they fail to supervene on the non-sortless profile delta. This thesis, um, single domain supervenience relation fails to obtain. That means when we look at X and try to explain X's um, modal properties, aesthetic properties, sortless properties, we are unable to do so in terms of X's non-sortless properties. Uh, moreover, we have a multiple domain supervenience relation whereby the sortless properties, again, just the example being a statue and being a lump, they fail to supervene on the properties in general of the axis, not just the non-sortless properties, but any properties whatsoever of the axis. Why is that? Because the axis, they will have some property profile that's just called gamma, which can be the, include both sortless and non-sortless properties. Given that the x's are shared, any explanation that we use to give a multiple domain supervenience relation, any um, explanation of the properties of the whole in terms of the properties of the parts would also apply in the other case. But again, they differ in the properties, so that doesn't work. So this is what is called the grounding problem. How do we ground or explain the differing properties amongst coinciding objects? We've seen that this problem really takes two different forms in the form of a single domain supervenience failure, sortless properties of holes in terms of non-sortless properties of those very same holes, and a multiple domain supervenience failure in terms of the sortless properties of holes in terms of the properties of any type whatsoever of the parts that are shared. This is um, the problem. There are, I think, uh, two ways of approaching this. Um, roughly um, correspond to the distinction whether one focuses on the single domain case or the multiple domain case. One approach operates what we can broadly speaking call a mirrorological approach. We add some more structure into our theory to account for the differences of the object. How do we do that? Well, we have the x's and we have now um, the lump and we have the statue. And we say it's true that both of them are Compose of the axis, so the lump is the fusion of the axis, and oh, sorry, and the statue is a fusion of the axis. However, we now introduce some additional structure into my, our mirrorology. We are maybe pluralists, so this is a fusion relation one, and this is a fusion relation two. This is a different type of relation, or we add certain kind of hylomorphic um, elements into our theory. So it's really fusion gets uh, characterized by some. Um, there's a form one and here's a form two. We add some further elements uh, into the picture. If we do that, um, we can explain 
why uh, the lump has certain properties that the statue doesn't have, vice versa, because even though they share the same parts that have the very same properties, um, there is an important difference about how they are generated out of those parts. The fact that the ways in which they're generated out of the very same parts are distinct enables us to explain why the properties of them are distinct. So the distinctness of the properties, despite the parts being the same, is explained in terms of a difference in the way in which the objects are composed or generated out of those parts. This account um, treats it exactly in the form of a multiple domain supervenience case. We explain the differences amongst the coinciding objects in terms of differences um, at the level of how they're generated out of the parts. That means we still have a, a violation of single domain supervenience. Um, that will still fail. It still won't be possible to explain why X is a lump in terms of features of X, the non-sortless features of X. We have to move to the, the, to, the, to the parts and especially the way in which the object is composed or generated out of those parts to have that explanation. This is an approach that uh, I think in some sense is a very satisfactory way of thinking about um, coinciding objects and grounding problem. Um, the one that treats it as a distinctively multiple domain um, uh, problem, um, but it is one that I will set aside and I will instead focus on a different way of thinking about it, um, namely really at the level of trying to explain how can we get X as being a lump explained somehow in terms of X satisfying a certain um, set of conditions at the non-sortless level, X having a certain non-sortless profile um, delta, whilst Y has that very same profile. Uh, this treats us essentially as a single domain supervenience case. Um, why should we focus on that way of thinking it? Uh, there's really um, two ways of thinking about this. One, thinking about coinciding objects. There is the question, can one defend coinciding objects um, and address the grounding problem without taking on um, all this extra uh, mirrorological structure, structure at the mirrorological level? That's one way of asking the question is kind of what can we do at the level of the explanation, at the level of the property, so to speak? What can we do without um, introducing a much more complicated mirrorology? In some sense, one way of thinking about this, what is the minimal departure from classical extension mirrorology that allows us to make sense of coinciding objects and address the grounding problem. That is um, one reason why one should take this project seriously if one is interested in coinciding objects. But there's also another reason that for me is much more important um, why uh, this way of thinking, the single domain supervenience variant of the grounding problem is worth um, considering in detail and taking seriously. And that is really, the, the reason is, if we think of it this way, the problem is structurally analogous to uh, a kind of problem we find in a number of different areas, a number of different areas where we cannot introduce the neurological resources to solve the problem. So thinking about statues and lumps in this context can help us to also illuminate very uh, important other problems in philosophy in a range of areas. What I'm thinking about is, here, the problem is that of trying to explain effectively um, differences in, uh, in, in properties 
amongst objects where the, the kind of the supervenient space seems to be in some importance and symmetric. Uh, to put it more precisely, what we're interested in is a case where we have underdetermination in an asymmetric system that admits of non-trivial automorphisms. What that means is that we have uh, a set of objects. We have um, some set of base properties that are distributed amongst them. And now um, the system is such that we have a, an automorphism, a mapping of the domain onto itself that is non-trivial. We don't just have the identity mapping. We also have cases where objects are, for instance, switched, uh, such that the B properties are preserved by that mapping. Um, and the things that are being mapped differ with respect to a certain class of properties, the A properties, and that leads to a type of an underdetermination. It looks like we are unable to explain um, the A properties. The A properties seem in important sense underdetermined by the B properties, given that the A properties are asymmetrically distributed. We have something that has an A property um, A1, whereas the other one lacks it, despite the fact that in terms of their B properties gamma, the two are indiscernible. So under determination of the A properties uh, in terms of the B properties, and that's characterized by this kind of problem, problematic. Um, and what I've sketched here schematically, the statulum case fits very straightforwardly. We have the base property, the non-sorted properties um, of the statue and the lump, and they have correspondingly different sortless properties, the A properties, if we uh, permute the objects in the question, we do have non-trivial automorphisms that leads to a failure of supervenience. This is what we find in the case of coinciding objects in the way um, I've suggested we think about the problem, but we also find it in other cases. Where do we find it, for instance? Well, we find it when we look at the complex number field and we have the um, numbers i and minus i. Um, they, in some sense, are structurally indistinguishable, but yet um, differ in terms of their, their A properties. They're meant to be distinct numbers that play different roles, but in some sense, they're also structurally indiscernible. It happens at the level of entangled fermions, where, again, in some sense, the base is the same, but yet we have difference. The one is meant to be spin up, the other one is spin down, um, for instance. So, uh, and it happens, um, case I find uh, the most interesting, in the chiral case, where we have right hands and left hands, their counterparts, but yet they're incongruous. So the right hand and left hand are counterparts of each other. If you take any two parts of a hand and look at the internal relations amongst them, they will be mirrored by the relations amongst a hand of the other type, yet you cannot, um, at least in a non-orientable um, space, in orientable space, uh, three space, take uh, a right glove and put it on left hand. So these are cases where we have um, differences um, amongst things that at some level share the same base properties. And um, they are all instances of this general um, problem under determination in an asymmetric system that admits of non-trivial automorphisms. And um, that is the more general problem I'm interested in. And in some sense, what we'll do with the statues and lumps is to illustrate this general problem in a very specific context. And I will try to sketch and 
give an argument to some extent that we have an exhaustive characterization of the types of solutions we can find for this problem of underdetermination. There will be four different approaches for how to address this problem. And um, that these, this, the, the structure of the space of solutions is the same in all the different cases. Uh, whether you deal with statues and lumps, whether you deal with right hands and left hands, whether you deal with I and minus I, or whether you deal with spin up and spin down um, objects in the quantum case, the structure of the space of solutions is exactly the same. What gets interesting is that the plausibility of various solutions does differ from case to case. And that is something um, that I find particularly interesting to see under what conditions which solution is particularly appropriate. So this is, uh, in some sense, really for me, the main driving reasons why I uh, tend to think of the grounding problem as uh, in this form as a single domain supervenience failure, rather than thinking about it as a distinctively mirrorological problem where mirrorological solutions will help to address it. So um, for the sake of brevity and time, I will um, in some sense move relatively quickly to the characterization of the problem and then the space of solution. Where are we at this stage? We have a statue and we have a lump and we have a certain profile of properties that shared amongst them. What do we need to explain? Um, do we need to explain that there is a statute, that there is a lump? The suggestion in some sense that the existential facts are actually fully supervenient and explained by the base features. When we look at uh, properties like existential, um, or so, sorry, certain facts like existential facts, they are fully grounded in the base. When you have ever, whenever you have um, some x's that satisfy a gamma or an x that satisfy um, condition delta, uh, it will be the case that there will be a statue and a lump. Um, properties like that, are, uh, facts like that, are fully determined. The thing that we need to explain, in some sense, is a rather slightly different question: is not why there's a statue and why there's a lump, but rather um, why is X a statue rather than a lump? And why is Y a lump rather than a statue? It's these contrastive questions that really need to be explained because we in some sense need to explain which of the objects gets to be a statue and which gets to be a lump. And this is exactly where the problem arises. Whatever we do when we explain X as being a statue um, rather than X as being a lump, we seem to run into difficulties because that very same explanation would also seem to be applicable in the case of Y. That is effectively the problem that we're facing. We need to find some account as to how these properties, statue and lump, are going to end up being distributed amongst the coinciding objects. That is the problem that we need to address. And um, how do we make progress with this problem? Um, I, we want to suggest that there are really four ways of thinking about this. Um, four ways of thinking about um, the relationship um, between the, the, the base properties and the, 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 the so-called supervening properties. And what one way of doing, thinking about this is to use um, a kind of an equation that I find incredibly helpful by James Van Cleve. James Uncleave. He has this wonderful um, idea, the way I understand it at least is that we have an equation that says under, de under determination 
plus supervenience equals indeterminacy. That is, I think, the key equation that we need to keep in, in our mind in order to understand how we should, um, uh, how to understand this, uh, the problem of coinciding objects, but also these other problems that I've mentioned, including chiral properties, including um, complex number field and the like. Very roughly the thought is supervenience is here understood, not necessarily just as a, as a formal technical relation, but some kind of determination relation. The thought is if you have a class of properties, the base properties, and they fix the, um, they are in some sense in the business of fixing the supervening properties, the A properties. The base properties are in the business of fixing the A's properties and they underdetermine the properties in question, then you end up with indeterminacy. When we have that equation in our mind, we can see that there are initially two ways of uh, thinking about this problematic. One way to think about it is that we actually accept that there is underdetermination. We take the supposed underdetermination at face value and say it's true that um, the base in question uh, fails to fully determine um, the, the A properties in question, the things we're interested in. If we do that, if we accept underdetermination, then we can either accept supervenience, and then we end up precisely with the indeterminacy, so in some sense there is no fact of the matter about how the properties in question are distributed. So we have um, sortless properties, we want to explain them. Um, we do uh, want to explain in terms of the non-sortless properties. We accept that the non-sortless properties do not suffice for fully determining them. They in some sense underdetermine the distribution of the sortless properties. And we accept that um, the uh, properties to the extent to which they are fixed at all are fixed by the base properties. That leads us to no fact of the matter, some kind of indeterminacy. The alternative is to reject supervenience. This then means it's not that we have no fact of the matter, but rather brute fact of the matter. So here, um, the base properties, the non-sortless properties, underdetermine the sortless properties. However, um, the, because we reject the supervenience of the um, sortless properties, we do say that they are in some sense not uh, a function of the, um, the base properties, but instead say that they can uh, be in some sense, that there's in some sense a brute fact of the matter. It's a kind of primitivist view, whereas the other one is an indeterminacy view. Those are the two possibilities we have once we accept the underdetermination, either accept the supervenience or reject the supervenience. The alternative that we can um, do is to actually reject underdetermination. These are what I, we can think of as revision, uh, <clears throat> revisionary approaches. When we start out with the original problem, it looks like we have some form of underdetermination. It looks like there is, there are some facts that are in need of explanation, but that in some sense fail to be suitably explained. If we take a revisionist approach, what we do is that we in some sense say the, the situation 
as it's being presented is actually mischaracterized. In some sense, this situation is misrepresented. And we, if we suitably reconceptualize and revise our understanding of the entities that are involved in the problem, then the problem disappears. The underdetermination disappears. And here, there are really two ways of thinking about this. Uh, very roughly, we can be revisionist at the level of the properties or at the level of the objects. Because what we're doing, we're trying to distribute certain type of properties that are asymmetrically distributed. Intuitively, it seems like they're asymmetrically distributed amongst a set of objects. And now we can either change something, so to speak, at the level of the properties or in the first place at the level of the objects. That's um, rather schematic and rough. We'll go into the details in a moment to explain it uh, more precisely what is meant by that. So these are what I take to be the, first, the four um, solutions. I will briefly run through them and then illustrate uh, and argue why I take, to, in the case of coinciding objects, the brute fact of the matter um, suitably conceptualized to be the most uh, appropriate one in the case of coinciding objects. Um, uh, maybe we'll have some time, especially in the Q&A, to discuss in more detail why um, uh, in the context of some of the other examples I mentioned, for instance, chiral properties or the complex number fields, some of the revisionist approaches in particular are much more promising than in the case of coinciding objects. So let me move relatively quickly to the, the first case, indeterminacy. Here the idea is that, okay, we have um, some objects and we have X and we have Y and they're distinct. That's the view of the pluralist, the person who accepts coinciding objects. But now we have these two properties, lump and statue, and they are to be distributed amongst them. And it looks like we've seen, we have no ground for uh, distributing there's no reason to assign one of the properties to the one rather than the other. Anything to be said in one case also applies in the other case. They're both equally eligible candidates. So one way to think about this is to really say um, that we have some kind of indeterminacy. So really we have two possible distributions. The one is the case where um, X is a lump and Y is a statue. And the other one is where um, X is a statue and Y is a lump. And these are the two distributions. They're the ones that are compatible with the base facts. Um, and those are the facts that are fixed by the base facts. Uh, that those are the two possible distributions. Uh, but in some sense, um, the, the base doesn't privilege one over the other. The base doesn't fix either of them. So in some sense, we are now having indeterminacy between these two cases. So we can kind of supervaluate over the two distribution and then say it's determined in the case that there is a statue and that there is a lump, the existential facts are fully determined um, on each way of um, thinking about the way the world could be. Given the base facts, there will be a statue and there will be a lump, but it is indeterminate which of the things is a statue and which is a lump. So we have indeterminacy at the level of the properties of the object, but determinacy at the level of, for instance, the existential facts. That is a, um, an, uh, an approach, the indeterminacy approach, which uh, 
I think is an interesting one, but runs into quite important difficulties when uh, we think about the fact that, um, at least in, in, in the case of temporary coincidence, coincidence can cease to be. So when we add the temporal dimension, we have T1 and we have T2. And we have two objects, X and Y, with it being kind of indeterminately distribution of uh, statue and properties amongst them. And at the later point, we have an object um, that's just a lump. Let's assume the, the statue lump uh, coinciding object pair has been squashed. And now the question arises, which of the things that existed at T1 is still around at T2? Given that it's indeterminate which of them is a lump, it's going to be indeterminate which of them is still around. But that then suggests that diachronic identity facts, um, the, the diachronic uh, identity facts are going to be indeterminate. So the indeterminacy at the level of the synchronic question, which of the two objects is the statue and which of the lump, becomes transformed into something like an indeterminacy in terms of the persistence and diachronic identity. And um, whilst it might not sound that bad to say there's a statue and a lump, it determines which of them is, is which, um, to say that identity itself becomes kind of infected with indeterminacy, persistence becomes infused with indeterminacy, is something that I find rather troubling. And um, this kind of case, the temporary coincidence case, uh, is, some, uh, is one that causes trouble for the indeterminacy case, but we'll also see later causes difficulties for some of the other approaches. So this is the first solution in determinacy. There's no fact of the matter. Um, and the problems that it generates in, in the temporary coincidence case and why I think we should reject it. The second approach says, well, it's a brute fact of the matter. We don't say there is no fact of the matter, but a brute fact of the matter. Uh, we just have, um, X is a lump and Y is a statue. And now in some sense, the question is, well, what makes that the case that X is a lump and Y is a statue? In some sense, there will be um, no answer that's going to be forthcoming. That just is a fact that we have a brute fact. Where things now get difficult is to get clear on this idea of what it means to be a brute fact. Um, there's one very widespread and very intuitive and traditional way of thinking about it, the brute facts are really fundamental facts. So a brute fact or fundamental fact is one that lacks a ground. That's something that has admits of no explanation. But if that's what's going on, we really are in uh, quite, uh, quite a lot of trouble. Um, first of all, if we want to say that uh, fundamental facts are ungrounded facts, the fact that something is a statue, that that is uh, a fundamental fact of the world seems rather implausible. Um, statues are highly complex mineralogical objects. Um, they're not, it's not very plausible to put them at, in some sense at the fundamental level of reality. Um, and uh, one can render this in related problems more precise if we think in terms of the kind of problem that, um, problematic that arises if one imposes something like the purity constraint that Hetzaida identified where in some sense, fundamental facts can only make reference to fundamental entities and fundamental properties, then um, uh, it looks like suddenly a reference to 
highly complex mirrorological objects and statues uh, does seem to be in, in violation of that purity constraint. The next problem is we have the statue, the coinciding um, statue, or rather let's focus on the coinciding lump. And now let's take a non-coinciding lump, just an isolated lump somewhere else. Uh, the isolated lump, we don't have this ground problem. There's no distribution problem. There's no underdetermination. That isolated lump has a bunch of properties. In particular, there's going to be a set of properties that seem to explain why that thing is a lump. There are some features of that object that make it into a lump and then explain it being a lump. But now it may very well be the case that these properties are also shared by the coinciding lump. And now the question arises, how is it possible for these features to explain why the one thing is a lump, yet not be able to explain why the other is a lump over here. So the way in which the explanation uh, works over here would seem to carry over, at least if we accept certain principles like necessitation and formality and the, and the kind of the theory of grounding, they would suggest that if it holds here, it holds over there. So it just becomes very difficult to explain how the coinciding lump can be a lump in a brute way when the non-coinciding lump is a lump in a non-brute way. And here's a related uh, problem that it looks like the two things are lumps in very different ways. In the one case, what it is to be a lump is explained what that consists in, in, it, in terms of it's having various kinds of features and it's being a kind of lumpy-like thing. Like, you know, not very good at conceptual analysis of lumps, but you can take your favorite analysis of what it is to be a lump, plug that in, you will get an explanation that applies to um, this object Z, that isolated lump. But that story apparently will not hold in the case of X, the coinciding lump, because there it just happens to be a lump. That's the end of the story. Um, and then the fourth and final problem that we get for this um, bruteness as fundamentality conception is that if it's really a fundamental fact that there's a lump and a fundamental fact that, that, that the other thing is a statue, it becomes very difficult to explain how it is that these existential facts, that um, when there are coinciding objects, there are coinciding objects, for instance, that there is both a statue and a lump, can be explained. Because fundamental facts are quite generally independently recombinable. But then it looks like we might have a statue. Sorry, my, my pen is not working. It looks like we can have a, a, a statue without a lump. Um, if it's just a fundamental fact. If that is a fundamental uh, fact, that Y is a statue, um, and a fundamental fact that X is a lump, why can we not just have the one without the other? They should be independently recombinable, but um, that conflicts with the very uh, thought that led us to the coinciding object view. So the brute fact of the matter view is in some sense a, a plausible, plausible uh, or, sorry, a, 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 a view that one is naturally led to once one um, moves from the no fact of the matter view and wants to move away from the indeterminacy, reject the indeterminacy, we go from no fact of the matter to brute fact of the matter. But if brute fact is understood as fundamental fact, we run into these various difficulties. So what I uh, uh, want to do is to really break that um, connection and say that being a brute fact and being a fundamental fact are two very different things. 
And in some sense, what we really need to do is to make room for non-fundamental bruteness. And here, um, uh, I will just briefly sketch a theory that uh, can allow us to make sense of that. I, I've developed it in, in more detail elsewhere. Um, but very roughly, the thought is that we can distinguish fundamental facts from brute facts. Um, whilst all fundamental facts are brute facts, it's not the case that all brute facts are fundamental facts. How is that possible? We have to introduce the notion of an incomplete ground. An incomplete ground is a ground that goes some but not all of the way in explaining something. An incomplete ground is not a partial ground. A partial ground is a part of a foreground. A foreground is something that fully explains it, and then a partial ground is a part of that foreground. A partial ground is a ground that, when supplemented by additional ground, becomes a foreground. An incomplete ground, by contrast, is not something that gets supplemented, but something that simply does some of the explanatory work, but where the explanatory work runs out. If we um, think in terms of incomplete grounds, what happens is that we think of something that is in some sense, to some extent grounded, but to some extent brute. So we, we think of uh, the grounding explanatory work being done uh, to some extent by a certain ground. In a certain way that leads us um, to an, a theory, what we can think of as a, a theory of stochastic grounding. So grounding becomes probabilistic on this way of thinking. So we have certain probabilities come into the picture. So we have something like uh, um, probability that um, a certain set of certain property profile of X grounds that that is a lump um, that will have a, a, a certain a certain kind of probability. How we make sense of this whole thing is that we really need to distinguish between what we can think of as contributing grounds and contravening grounds. So a contributing ground is something that in a certain way speaks in favor of something being a certain way and a contravening ground is something that speaks in favor of it being a different way. So a contravening ground is a ground of a feature that is incompatible with the thing that we're interested in. And what's going to happen now is that when we take the um, object X and we look at its non-sortless properties, so we think of it here, it's non-sortless properties, there's going to be a whole bunch of them that it has, that there's going to be some subset of them, um, let's call them delta, and they will be contributing grounds for X as being a lump. And there will be some of them, they might overlap to some extent, um, let's call them gamma, and they will be contributing grounds of its being a statue. And since lump and statues are incompatible, being a lump and being a statue are incompatible properties, these two uh, will be, what will be contributing grounds of being a lump will be contravening grounds of being a statue and vice versa. So what we effectively are saying then is that we're going to be interested in trying to ground LX grounded in the contributing grounds, delta X 
despite there being contravening grounds uh, gamma had by x. And these contributing and contravening grounds, they effectively lead to uh, a situation where we have this kind of failure of necessitation. X's being um, satisfying condition, delta is not going to suffice for it being a lump, precisely because there are contravening grounds that if they win out, instead ground X as being a statue. So the base properties of X, the non-sortless properties, contain properties that in some sense speak in favor of incompatible properties. That means they cannot both succeed in grounding because otherwise the thing would have incompatible contradicting properties, which it cannot have. Um, so uh, at most one, uh, and indeed one of them can only succeed in grounding, one of them wins out in the case of X, and one of them wins out in the case of Y. Um, we can go into some details, um, but because in some sense the grounds are anti-correlated, whichever wins out in the case of X is the one that loses in the case of Y and vice versa. So we end up with there being two objects, one of them being a lump and one of them being a statue. Um, in each case, it's being a lump can be explained in terms of the grounds that it has. These are incomplete grounds that only stochastically grounded. Um, and uh, that then allows us to say that, that X is a lump involves a certain degree of fruitness because in some sense chance has to come in and make it the case that in the case of X, it was delta that won and gamma lost out. Whereas in the case of Y, that's grounded in um, exactly the reverse, sorry, the reverse um, property profile. So this loses out and this wins. If we go that way, we're going to have some bruteness. Um, there's going to be some bruteness as to which object um, gets which of the sortal or modal proper properties. But that is, uh, does not mean that we're dealing with fundamental facts. Instead, we're dealing with incompletely grounded facts, facts that are stochastically grounded. That then addresses the various problems that we had um, because the very same properties that are doing the grounding in the case of the coinciding lump are the ones that are also doing the case, uh, the grounding in the case um, of the isolated lumps. So that is the proposal that I think is um, the one that we should accept. Um, it's a bruteness approach, um, but one that importantly uh, does not treat rudeness as a type of fundamentality, but instead works with a stochastic approach that's based on the idea of incomplete grounds, which in turn is explained in terms of the interaction of contributing and contravening grounds. Um, that gives us to two non-revisionist proposals, the ones that take the underdetermination at face value. Um, also, one way of thinking about the difference between the two approaches uh, that I find fruitful to think about is that uh, the indeterministic approach, in some sense, that is, we have a certain kind of grounding gap. The facts at the base leave some gap as to which of these distributions is the case. Whereas what we have here, because of the contravening and contributing grounds, we rather have a kind of a glut. The base properties are such that in each case, um, incompatible um, outcomes are favored by the base and only one of them can win out. So uh, one way of thinking about the contrast between the approaches is in terms of a gap-based and a glut-based approach. And for the reasons I've indicated, I find the glut-based approach the preferable. Um, let me briefly um, indicate uh, 
two other possibilities that I only briefly mentioned earlier, um, namely the two revisionist proposals, and show why it is that they're rather implausible in the case of statues and lumps, um, yet uh, are much more plausible and are very interesting in the case of other scenarios, such as um, the complex number field, for instance, or uh, coinciding, sorry, or chiral properties, the right hand and the left hand. Um, let's move somewhat quickly. We have the third approach. One way of calling that is, um, is it's a reduction um, of properties to relations. The problem is we have these seemingly monadic properties, x has and that y has, and the question is how do we distribute them, the lump property and the static property. And just to give you uh, the other example, we have a right hand and we have a left hand, and those are the properties that um, hands have, and here the problem is they in some sense are uh, counterparts to each other, so how is it that the one ends up being a right hand, the other a left hand? A very, um, a very straightforward way of dealing with a chiral case that is used by relationists is really to say, uh, let's not talk about these monadic properties, right hand and left hand, really. When we're doing fundamental metaphysics, what we have is a, a set of relations. We have same-handedness and opposite-handedness. Those are the only two relations there are at the fundamental level. So we have x1, x2, and they're same-handed. And then we have y1 and y2, and they may be same-handed. But then we have the opposite relations across them. And if we take these relations, same-handed and opposite-handed, what we get, we're going to get a partition into two equivalence classes. All of them have the same to each other and then opposite uh, to the ones in the other class. What we then do is just arbitrarily, by stipulation, um, ostensibly pick out a member of one class, call that a right hand, and then say right hands are all the ones that are in the equivalence class in which that arbitrarily stipulated member um, belongs to, and left hand are the ones over here. So right and left are just labels that we use by and introduced by means of an arbitrary stipulation. They do not pick out any deep properties. All we have is really what goes on in the same handed and opposite handedness at the fundamental level. This approach is um, uh, one that uh, I think inspired Ted Sider to try to construct an analogous solution at the level of the lumps and the statues. And to say that they really are at the fundamental, there's the same sort, he uses things, does things in terms of modal properties, but we can just um, transpose his approach to the sortal case and say there is really a same sortal F relation and there's an opposite sortal F relation. We introduce them in a rather indirect way in terms of uh, our slightly misleading ordinary language and say that kind of this, this fundamental relation, same sort of F holds between X and Y if and only if X and Y are either identical or they're coincident in everything to which either is identical coincidence of the sort of F. And their opposite sort of F if and only if X and Y are coincident, exactly one is of the sort of F. What then happens is that we really have X and Y and we have the opposite 
lump and the opposite statue relation amongst them. There are two symmetric relations. There's no asymmetry here. There's no failure of supervenience. There's no underdetermination. It looked like we had some failure of supervenience underdetermination because we used our somewhat defective monadic properties, um, lamp and statue. Once we use, go to the perspicuous metaphysical fundamental language in terms of the, these opposite relations, the problem gets solved. Um, whilst I think this is a very promising approach in the chiral case, um, we do run into important difficulties when we try to apply this approach to the case of statues and lumps. Here is the reason why. Um, well, really um, two important uh, considerations that we've already seen to some extent in the prior discussion. One is uh, once we move um, to cases of temporary coincidence and we include the diachronic dimension. If we do that, we have um, time T1 and T2. We have a coinciding um, coincidence at the one time with the, the opposite relations what we would usually call an, a statue and a lump that coincides, or in the preferred language, an X and a Y that stand in the opposite sortal um, lump and the opposite sortal statue relation to each other. And now we squash that thing and then end up with an X that stands in the same sortal lump relation to itself, symmetric reflexive relation. These are irreflexive symmetric relations, the opposite relations. And now we are faced with a very serious problem. We want to know which thing existing at T1 is the thing to which X at T2 is identical. Do we have identity over here or do we have identity over here? And there's no answer that's going to be forthcoming. We have two options. Either we say it's indeterminate, but then this third approach really collapses back into the indeterminacy approach we started with, at least at the diachronic level, and then we might go indeterminacy all the way. Or we say it's just the brute fact of the matter, the primitive fact of the matter, and then uh, we'll treat identity as not being subject to informative criteria, um, and then we collapse into something much more like the second proposal. So this leads us to serious difficulties, the possibility of temporary coincidence. Uh, similarly, uh, again, take coinciding case, we have opposite um, lump and opposite statue. And now take a Z, a completely disconnected, isolated lump, something that's in the same uh, uh, sort of lump relation to itself. Again, it, lo it looks like the thing over here, there's nothing over here such that um, uh, the isolated thing shares something in common with the other. That was, is a much more radical version than the problem we had when we treated rudeness as a type of fundamentality. Um, we, there's no property that's shared by one of the things, the X and the Y, that we have over here on the left with the thing on the right, uh, the isolated thing that's a lump. Uh, this means that being a lump or something like that becomes radically uh, disjunctive and heterogeneous. Um, there's, in some sense, not a clear sense of resemblance across these things. So um, the kind of the possibility of non-coinciding lumps and the possibility of uh, temporary coincidence, I think, really poses very significant
problems for this third approach. And I'll be very brief for the fourth approach as well. It's a, um, um, a similar kind of approach, but this time in the fourth approach, we don't in some sense change things in the first place at the level of the properties, but instead what we do, we take a move now to the, to the level of collectives. What we really say is not that there's an X that's a lump and a Y that's a statue where they are distinct, but we say there are some Ys such that they form a statue lump system. Uh, so we really attribute a, a, a lump statue collective property to uh, the Ys, to the system. Uh, if we do that and we leave it at the level of the collective, um, we don't have to distribute and say that lump belongs to one member of the collective and, and statue to the other member of that system of that collective, but rather there's just a collective property that's non-distributive and it's instantiated by the Ys collectively. Uh, however, we work out the details in this case, we really are in trouble again once we uh, again consider the diachronic case or the isolated case. Because here, what we do is through the um, temporary coincidence or through the isolated lump, we introduce the kind of asymmetry that breaks the symmetry that the move to the level of systems was meant to address in the first place. So for these reasons, I think that the revisionist proposals are not going to be fruitful in the case of coinciding objects. And for the reasons that I've indicated, the indeterminist approach is not fruitful either. And the bruteness approach, once we move away from bruteness as fundamentality and introduce this idea of stochastic grounding and incomplete grounds, um, is one that I think is the most fruitful. Um, and for that reason, I think that if one is going to be a pluralist, and if we leave aside the mirrorological solutions, but want to work at the level of properties, I think that um, the second approach, the one that treats a brute fact of the matter, where um, which of the ones is a statue, which of the lump, and the bruteness is explained or is characterized and analyzed in terms of this notion of an incomplete ground and a stochastic uh, explanation. If we do that, then I think we end up at a nice position. Uh, thank you very much for your time.